Hi everyone, welcome to In Brackets, the literary podcast of Hot Metal Bridge. I'm Avery Keatley. We've been on hiatus this summer, but we are very excited to be back with a new season of conversations with some of our favorite writers. We'll be publishing new episodes on the first Friday of every month, so give us a follow on SoundCloud, Spotify, or iTunes to stay up to date on our latest episodes. We're kicking off this season with a very special guest, Wesley Morris. He stopped by in the spring to talk with my friend and colleague, Andrew Thurman, about criticism, taking risks in your writing, and why we might have been better people when rom-coms were still being made. Here's Andrew and Wesley. Hi, I'm Andrew Thurman here for In Brackets with Wesley Morris. Wesley is a critic at large for the New York Times, where he is also the co-host of the podcast Still Processing. In 2012, he won the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism, and in 2017, his essay on black male sexuality, The Last Taboo, was selected for the Best American Essays. Wesley, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Right. Uh, I've been a fan of yours since I read your TED 2 review of <laughs> Grampland. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm uh, so sorry. Dumber than your average bear. Oh, yeah. it's, it's fantastic. Um, but I found that one of the joys of being a fan and following your work is sort of watching ideas become more precise or sharpen or evolve. Um, for instance, in the TED 2 review, your critique of Seth MacFarlane's anxieties and hangups became this cultural criticism mm-hmm. for um, Last Taboo. And similarly, um, I saw some of the self-work and self-reflection you described having to do for um, Cliff Huxtable was Bill Cosby's greatest, sickest joke, sort of had its execution at the end of Morality Wars. Uh Um, And so I guess I want to ask about your process generally Uh and how how those bigger essay pieces come about. Huh. They all, I mean, they all come from what begins as, well, not all, but like, some of them start from a very small place, right? Like, cause I'm reviewing a movie and then, you know, the question becomes like, what is the movie? What is the movie doing? What is the movie actually, what does the movie think it's doing? Um, and like just to use Ted two as an example, um, you know, I went and saw this movie. I did not know what it was going to be. I don't even remember whether I wanted to see it, but since I had not seen the first Ted, uh, cause when I was at the globe, you know, Ty Burr and I split the movies. <laughs> so I just didn't draw the Ted straw and, um, Oh wait, never mind. It doesn't matter. But like, I remember the actual reason I did not see Ted, the original Ted. So I watched that and then I went and saw the movie and I, um, Ted too. Um, and I was just sort of shocked by how bad I felt watching it. Um, and how angry I was at this movie that didn't even entirely seem to understand what it was doing. Because it also assumes that the people against its, whom it's doing this stuff probably aren't going to see it. Hmm. You know what I mean? Um, which is telling, right? Like, Yeah, pretending you know, it's a closed room somehow. Right, yeah. right. Um, and so that started to make me... Th- it just got me thinking about... Um, like a particular kind of racism and then that particular kind of racism's effect on me. And then um, like why a person like Seth MacFarlane would spend all this time focusing on black guys and their dicks. Right. And what that 
to me would say that has way more about that has way more to say to do with uh, Seth MacFarlane than it yeah. does with anything that has anything to do with me, right? Um, and I can't armchair psychologize him, but I can't. I'm not a med, I'm not a, like a member of like the American Medical Association or the American Psychiatric Association or whatever. Like I can do whatever I want. There's no, there's, I can I can give him whatever disease I think he might have. Yeah. I think you had a light hand about that, though. You, right, no, no, you, but you hit yes, him right yes, on the yes. chin. Yeah. But I also feel like I lived in Boston for a long time, and I have a lot of firsthand experience with. I mean, Seth MacFarlane's from that area of mm-hmm. the world, and I feel, and the movie is set in Boston, and I feel like I understand. I mean, these are people who don't know black people <laughs> and are free to let their imaginations go in the movie, not Bostonians. Although Bostonians, th- there's a corollary between these two things, right? Yes. Like they don't come from nowhere. Yeah. And as a person who lived there for a long time, I can tell you that there is something true about the way Ted and the Mark Wahlberg character function in that world and the expectations they have of, you know, themselves and people around them. Anyway, you know, yeah, the, the city I, exhibits the same sort of attitudes. Right. And right. And yeah. you know, the idea that they would break into Tom Brady's house to steal his sperm and order, you know, and it's just like, it's just, of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. Yeah. And then, you know, as a, but to answer your actual question, like where does something like that come from? I don't know. Um, I know that, um, I know that I sort of want to unpack my feelings about some like an experience like that um, and try to understand both why I feel the way I feel and why the person who made it felt the need to do all of the things that this movie is doing. It's not like it's one scene, right? Yeah. If it were one scene, I just would have treated the movie differently, right? If it was like, if, if it was, well, but you just pick one of those and it's still bad, right? But you take four or five of those scenes. One of my favorite turns of phrase of yours from that piece was, you know, about how Cam Newton's dick being an object of terror would be a funnier joke if Tom Brady's wasn't presented as holy. Right. The way that it it happens so frequently and it's always about this thing. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I wanted to try to figure out why I like I wanted to try to create some sort of uh mutual dysfunction analysis on my part and Seth MacFarlane's part. Do you know what I mean? Like I know, I know any black person who sees this movie is, I'm not any black person. I know there, there is a way for black people to see this movie and feel the way I felt. And I also wanted to try to account for what it is in a person like this that would make him want to explore this without ever actually exploring it. Right. To put all this stuff on, on screen and then, really not have any idea yeah totally how it looked it. Yeah. right and i've never talked to, i mean you know it, uh i'm talking to max linsky and and and, and or aaron lammer actually later of the long form podcast but i talked to to max linsky about this very question right like i wondered what i, I think he might have asked me what i would say if i had ever run into him or something like that and i actually i wonder you know i mean i definitely <laughs> I feel bad for this person. Do you know what I mean? Like not in a way that like exonerates any of the behavior that they've exhibited in their art, but I do, I feel like this is a person who, who 
has an issue that is so buried in him, but not buried that deep because <laughs> it's in all of the work. Yeah, because he's shown his whole ass the whole time. Right, yeah. right. Anyway, um, so like the to be able to get to to think about this stuff in in a in a public way um, is really is fun. And like one of the things I like about trying to problem solve a critical essay is like what about this thing beyond language, right? Like beyond like being able to sort of write something handsome, what else can I, what question can I ask that also is like a meaningful question? Um, You don't, not every piece has to do that, but the ones that are the most exciting for me as a thinker and as a writer are the ones that where I can find a way to, to ask that question or to tap into a thing. Um, I don't always, I don't frequently get to do this, but like to try to tap into a thing that I know people are thinking about, but don't know how to articulate and they don't really know it's a thing or a problem or something. And I don't know that it's as big a problem as, as I think it might be, but I know it is a problem. It's there. It's there. Right. And, and to try to give some, thinking to what the problem is and why it actually might be a big deal because I know I'm thinking about it and I know some other people are thinking about it, but nobody has actually thought out loud about it in like a meaningful, critical way. Right. Um, That that leads really nicely actually to another thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, Another thing that I admire about your work is that it often, you know, I think it's rare for anybody to say, Something like, I haven't totally figured this out, or I haven't Mm -hmm. fully squared this yet. Mm -hmm. And you often make criticism seem like an emotional labor as much as it is an intellectual one. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's really laudable. And I'm wondering, you know, if you wanted to talk through some of that generally, but also if there might be a particular figure, you know, um, an inspiration Mm. or an influence where that comes from. Um, Well... I like that it's emotional labor because it is emotional labor. Thank you. Um, I also sort of feel like, I don't know if you feel this way, but I definitely know that I like, if I'm going to sit there and spend, well, I mean, any time at all reading somebody write about something. And and the thing is not explicitly like a work of of reported or, or investigative journalism. I don't expect that work sort of daily reporting journalism, investigative journalism. I don't expect that to have a personal component to it, right? But I feel like if you're going to sit down, if you're going to ask me to sit down with you and like like walk me through the 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 quality of like an Andy Warhol show, right? I mean, you could you could tell me some historical things and some biographical things about Andy Warhol. Those are things I want to know. Like I, I want to know that, but I also want to know, and you know, I also want to know what, like what people were thinking when they were falling in love with this stuff in the 1960s. Like that's a thing that you should tell me too. But I also feel like I want to know to the extent that you can actually tell me, like, what is it like to stand in front of these paintings or you know prints or whatever what is it like to like to have the Andy Warhol experience for you 
Um, and what does this person mean to you? And I just sort of get bummed out when I never get any of that. I mean, I know that there's a way, I mean, I think there are a lot of critics who would say like, well, I'm telling you that, but they're not really risking anything to tell me that. Right. Um, and I think that the, the question that I always try to ask myself is like, what am I risking? Not, you know, not like a personal risk really and it doesn't really seem i'm very i have i know i still have lines about what i will and won't share because i i i i think a lot if i have to think about whether i want to put this in a piece or like say this on on our show um i know i'm always grateful for knowing where that line still is like i definitely like there are things i just don't want to to use for my work and so I still have, I mean, there are lots of things I just don't want to deal with in a piece that are, that are personal, but I mean, the experience of the experience of experiencing culture is personal. I mean, I don't know, like for me to sit here and talk to you about a thing that I watched, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say things like, well, in 1860, you know, before the civil war, I'm never going to say that. I'm going to say, I loved this thing. This thing was stupid. And here's how the thing made me feel. Those are things I'm going to tell you. And the idea that you can't like that you that 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 this conversation that we would have about some art show that we just saw together or that like I saw and then we go to dinner or get a coffee or something. And I'm what did you do today? I went and saw Andy Warhol show is long. I got tired. But did you know People. he was born in Pittsburgh right, in 1921? I mean, that's not how conversation right, that's, works. Nobody talks like that. Yeah. And I know that like that, that a piece of criticism has a has a job to do. Right. There's actual furniture that, that like you have to sit on in order to like bring the room to life. Or there's like stuff you have to have in the room to make the room feel like a living room. Right. But I get to paint the walls and pick the pattern on the furniture and like decide how many books on the shelves I want or whether I even want books. I mean, all of the, all of the stuff that you put in the room, that's up to you. And I just wish that more people, there's just like, I, I just wish people would take more personal risks in their criticism, whether you're writing something that's 500 words or 5,000 words. It, the, the length doesn't really matter if you if you, if you, you can come up with a strategy by which to do it. Anyway, the other half of your question was about our, uh, people that I read um, who, who do things like this. And, I mean, it's funny because I, I get asked some version of a, like, who do you like to read question a lot, and I never... I always have I next I just Wesley you should keep a list of, of things um but like off the top of my head when in the context of your question um I think about um <laughs> this is a crazy answer but this so there used to be this magazine called premiere do you, do you know this premier magazine it's a movie magazine it, it's it's probably before your time um are you probably born around the time that it stopped but it was the I would say it's the it's the greatest movie magazine. The movie sort of greatest movie industry magazine um, that had some, you know, movie culture flavoring in it. High praise. And it was there were long form um, profiles of people when like you could actually spend 
a week doing whatever you want it with like Jodie Foster or Mel Gibson or Denzel Washington or whoever. And um, one of the features that they that one of the features they had almost every week was this uh, this like a like a like an actual film review column by this by this woman in quotes I'm saying quote woman unquote named Libby Gelman Waxner. And she she was this sort of spoiled Jewish princess mother of X number of people with a husband. And, you know, she she I guess in type in in type would be Kelly Ripa, except (laughs) except Jewish. And like and, you know, Paul Rudnick is the person who wrote this column. And he sort of plays to this like for what purpose? <laughs> what? 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 To what purpose did he did he want to write the column? Or yeah, taking on this persona seems like a strange move. It it was brilliant though because what it actually turned into were it turned into these. I, I'm sure this work is this work has been collected and you can find it. There is definitely a Libby Gelman Waxner book, and all the reviews are in it and they're all hilarious. But if you extract the fact that this person isn't real, the things that she's writing about are like, she's writing about actual movies. Like she's actually writing about the experience of watching Tom Cruise and mission impossible. And she's writing about the actual experience of like, I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to remember exactly the things she wrote about off the top of my head, but I've just found the way that she used her life to inform the mood she was going to be in when she watched these movies or like in some cases why she wouldn't even want to watch these movies because she wasn't in the mood to do it because her life was, you know, she crashed her Mercedes and therefore couldn't get to the theater on time. So she had to imagine what, you know, this movie she missed was like, I just found the imagination around yeah, that's wild. that kind of criticism. Like, I mean, cause ultimately it still turned out to be a form of film criticism because somehow she was conveying an attitude toward, if not an actual movie or movie star, then toward the industry that created either of those things. And I just, I thought, yeah, that's a great, that's a great model for, for how to do that. And then, you know, like for actual critics, Robert Hughes was a huge, I love Robert Hughes. He's just like, he writes big I mean all the things that they say about Robert Hughes they're just true like he writes like big muscular criticism that's full of ideas and like grouchiness and opinions and he makes he takes stands on things and I love that I mean I don't really do a lot of that I'm not a I'm not a declaiming critic like I don't I mean first of all all the great statements have pretty much been made at this point right so you you just would be making some statement that somebody else has already made or you can take a statement that somebody has already made and you can debunk it but i just am not i'm too um you know it would be hard i'm not a sacred cow i'm not like i'm not a take a sacred cow and make a hamburger kind of person um like i don't believe that all the things that we think are great are great but you're not hunting for the hot take, though. No, because I mean, I'm more interested in figuring out why they were great, and not a, like sort of exploring why I think that's wrong. Like, why what what isn't as great as we say is great about this thing? Um, you know, I uh, 
James Baldwin is an, is another person. I mean, it's sort of, these are all sort of obvious things, but the idea that James Baldwin could spend five thousand words, I mean, probably even just like maybe ten thousand words, talking about his experience trying to 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 get a to write the screenplay for the audio autobiography of Malcolm X, and how that doesn't really seem to go anywhere. But in the middle of like getting like trying to figure out how to make it in the in the film industry he winds up writing about his memories of seeing different black people in like betty davis movies and like what he loves about betty davis and then going from that to what he loves about lady sings the blues and like how bad that movie is but also how good diana ross is in the role i mean it there is a way that he thinks about there's a way that all these people sort of think about the self in relation to other people's work. That is exactly the way we all do, except not all of us are as gifted and as talented as some of those people to, to make it happen. Sorry, that was a very long winded answer. No, thank you. But um, <laughs> I want to go back to, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> I do want to go back to um, some of the first part of your answer. It seemed okay. like what we were talking about was really trusting the audience, mm -hmm. you know, trusting them with certain, you know, privacy things or emotional things mm -hmm. that they, they're going to watch you going through these experiences. Mm -hmm. um, another feature of your work though, is that it often, you seem to trust the reader with really, uh, difficult concepts or difficult metaphors. Mm -hmm. um, I love using the "We are all Kardashians now" at the oh. end of uh, Ted Two. The Ted Two piece is a sort of litmus for which students are actually reading. Right, right, um, right. <laughs> I wonder um, how do you conceive of your audience then? Who are you writing for? Who do you, what What do you think of them? Hmm. I mean, there's never really a good answer to this question because I mean, there is a good answer. It's nobody, right? Like it's everybody and no one person. I mean, and I can tell you that like if you would ask me that question like 20 years ago, I would have had an answer and it would have been like, I can tell you people that I, I was definitely writing for people who were not everybody. And, you know, um, so 20 years ago, I still would, I would have been friends with Alex, Alex Papadimus, um, a guy I hosted a podcast with at Grantland, who's one of my do you Best like friends. Prince movies? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that for a long time I was writing to make Alex Papadimus laugh. Because I think that Alex Papadimus is like one of the greatest writers on the planet. And he also is, you know, I, it's not hard to make him laugh. But it's hard to make him laugh and let him and I, I just want him to know. I just want to I want to know whether or not he thinks something I did was funny. Um, or astute. Uh, so for a long while, it was people like him. I really, really liked the idea of trying to outrate the Village Voice people. When the Village Voice was a thing, right? Like, they had a really great, um, like, in the late 90s and early 2000s. I mean, I think that was another... They, I mean, they had a very strong 80s and 70s and 60s presence. But, like, when I was a hardcore voice reader... I thought that group of critics they had was fantastic. And I I didn't write like them and our ideas were totally different. Um, but our sense of our tastes were not so different. But I just came at the movies from a in a in a different way than they did. But I loved reading like Jessica Winter on why Mulholland Drive is so good or Dennis Lim on why um Memoirs of a Geisha is is atrocious. Um 
And so, but at some point, I just it became, and you know, I was I tried to imitate Dave Eggers for a while for a long time. I tried to get some like Anthony Lane out of my system. That took a long time to get out of my system. Um, there was a guy named Joshua Clover who wrote this singles column for Spin Magazine that is still one of the great achievements in, in short form writing that you're ever going to read. Um, anyway, I, it took a long time to get all of that out of my system. And now the answer is just everybody. Like, I really just I don't know because I want my Aunt Carol to be able to read what I write and understand what I'm doing. And I want, you know. Henry Louis Gates to read what I write and understand what I'm I want everybody to be my Aunt Carol by the way is not like Henry Louis Gates basically is what I'm saying my Aunt Carol is a is a she's a singer she does not have time to be like scratching her head while she reads she's got other stuff to do I just want um I don't know I, I want everybody to be able to read and understand what I'm doing and we can talk about whether or not you like or disagree with it later but you, I at least want you to be able to get on the train. And if you can't do that, then, then what is the point of what I'm doing? Talk to me about uh, talking about it later. How frequently do you deal with people? I mean, part of your job is occasionally going to be trashing something that somebody happens to love. Mm -hmm. You know, so what I wonder, you know, do you frequently get stopped on the street? And, you know, what happens <laughs> when you have these conversations? <laughs> um, no. You know, it's funny because I... I am also just old enough to con to to be able to say that I have walked down the street, uh, down Michigan Avenue in Chicago with Roger Ebert, and I will tell you like the way people would stop him and be like, "Oh, yo, what's up, Rog?" and be like, "Yo, you was hard on my movie. What's up, man? What? Why?" And he would always have some response. He was. He was so used to this, like being approached both as a celebrity and as an intellect and as a person with an opinion um, that I don't I don't have that. What I get is more like I get nicer things. I don't think people really want to fight you in public. Right. This is the I mean, I think this is the world we live in. Nobody is ever going to say to you at the supermarket, you didn't like Green Book. You should go. You should go fuck yourself. Do you know what I mean? Nobody's going to well, That's because nobody likes Green Book, but that, I see what That's you're not true. That's not true. So many people like that movie. So many. And it's not just the Academy. I'm telling you, to see that movie is to really risk falling under its spell. I totally understand why people like it. I 100% get it. I don't. I did not fall under its spell, but I got... I got... It's like that moment in The Wizard of Oz where, like... Whoever doesn't actually fall asleep in the opium, like the, the poppies, like does Dorothy pass out? I don't know if they all do. Somebody is strong enough to like stay awake for some of it. I think maybe Toto. I don't know. Anyway, it's really hard not to fall all the way under that. But I, I, people do. But nobody comes up to you and says you're wrong on Green Book, yo. Nobody says that. What they what they like they do that. They send you letters. They tweet at you. They will like flood what, you know, I've like 15 Instagram posts. They will like terrorize all 15 of those with their like nasty little, you got it wrong, you got it wrong, you got it wrong. Um, 
but people aren't like I actually like that Roger Ebert way, right? Because we were actually I think that was that was during an era. This was this, this would that would have been twenty years ago too. I think people were just friendlier. I mean, people were, were like, and it wasn't the end of the world. His show was about disagreeing, right? The show was about not necessarily agreeing with the person sitting right across from you, and you guys would have to talk out your disagreement. And I think I actually weirdly think that was really good for us and really healthy. And people were not afraid to come up to him on the street in their in his own city and be like, no, no, no. But it's nice to see you, Roger. I love that. But that doesn't happen to me. No, people just say nice things in person. <laughs> Cowards, I suppose. I don't know. I would say yes. <laughs> don't don't throw. I mean, I'm always afraid. I mean, this is I'm not going to say what I'm re- truly afraid of. But I will say that, like, I always get I am always afraid of being peated. Like somebody like I, I'm not, you know, I'm wearing a leather jacket today. You don't want to be a hashtag. I don't want it. Right. I don't want to. I don't want any. I don't like don't throw paint on me. Don't 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 do anything crazy. But you can like, of course, you can disagree with me. I like their opinions. <laughs> I'm not like this. This stuff isn't like tapped into us into 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 stone. I'm, I'm curious, too, then. um, you know, your response from critics, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, both both Last Taboo and Morality Wars incited, you know, a lot of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, given that your work is so thoughtful, I'm, I'm wondering if if there were any pieces that you really responded to. Pieces in, in respons- response to your work, yeah. Um, I mean, I have to be honest. Unless somebody really makes me read something that somebody wrote about something I wrote, I will not read it. Well, actually, you should tell me what what am I missing? Um, there was a salon roundtable. There was a vanity oh, I, fair I piece. Know. Oh wait, oh wait, I don't know about any of this. Go on. Um, wait for which for which story? Uh, I'm thinking morality wars. Okay. Um, last taboo was mostly sort of uh, smart people tweeting mm-hmm. about it. Um, mm-hmm. Morality wars though actually got you know the full long form response. From yeah. I th- I've read I did read one thing by by Inku Kang who writes for Slate. Um I was also on a on a panel with her. And I think, you know, she she had some legitimate things to be I mean, she I think I think the umbrage that she took with my with my essay was I think that the thing that I'm arguing is so it's so anecdotal and I think she was sort of looking for data in some ways that like I can't provide her like I can't provide her every single instance of somebody scratching their head or like pulling a punch before they say they don't like um you know a wrinkle in time I don't have all that at my disposal what I do have is you know stories that people have told me about like wanting to write about that movie or like coming out of the theater and being like I don't seemed fine to me but i mean the the book was better and all the things you say every single thing that you would normally say about a wrinkle in time if it had been a bunch of white people made by a white person you could not say about this movie made by a black woman starring a black girl and it just the world can't work that way and i i but that is isn't just the movies right it's like it is affecting the way our art gets given to us it is affecting, you know, the way that television gets made. Um, I mean, there are all kinds of implications for this fear of 
not accepting or for or for a fear of like seeming intolerant or or worse racist for not like just bowing down before this non-white work and 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 not saying more than like i'm glad it exists um which just feels inadequate to me but anyway like what she wrote was was thoughtful but it could only really account for like a sliver of what i'm what what dismays me right the the prove it part isn't what really interested you no because i'm right (laughs) right like it's not like i'm not making this up it's a real thing and I mean, I've, I mean, I talked to her a little bit about it and like the, 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 the problem that, that the, the thing I'm worried about is real. And so is everything of every, every facet of this problem is real, right? Like we are really in a moment where there are more non-white straight men doing stuff, making art. And that is great. We are really in a moment where there are people who who lack the ability or lack lack the confidence to be able to discern the work's existence from the work's quality, right? They're conflated for a lot of people. And I think that is, and then I think that she was mostly upset that, or like concerned that I was making a generational generalization. And I really, I don't even think I'm, I'm a hundred percent sure I don't use the word millennials in that piece. And I didn't want it to be a generational argument because it's not just young people. Young people aren't having the problem with it. Old people are having the problem with it. Young people, I think, in general, are just like, get out of the way or, you know, you're wrong, Wesley, because this. I mean, but that isn't even true because I heard from all kinds of young people who were like, I'm glad you said that. Thank you. I don't like a wrinkle in time either <laughs> or, or whatever crazy rich agents. It's just a movie. It's just a movie. It's fine, but it doesn't like, am I not going to be able to go to Thanksgiving dinner? Cause I didn't like that movie. Right. I just feel like that's the, that is the world we live in. And I, I just wanted to present the problem. And now that it's out there, you can, you know, people can feel however they want to feel about it, but I, I'm right. And I'm not saying that defensively, like, the thing I'm presenting is a real thing. And what we do about that problem is 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 separate from the problem being a problem in the first place. I agree. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, send us off with a uh, uh, what do you want on your rainbow moment? What is your um, what is your advice to the young critic who is inspired by your work and wants to become a critic themselves? Um, oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I don't know. Uh, I would say just be yourself. Um, I mean, you might not know what that is right away, but you'll figure it out. Like, I don't think I really knew. I thought I, I think I knew who I was, but I don't think I knew who I was as a, as a critic and as a writer. That takes a long time to figure out. But I knew that I had a voice and I wasn't afraid to use that. Um, be fair. Like whatever, I can't say whatever fair is to you because then, you know, I have to, you have to have some litmus for what fair is. My litmus test for fair, and I've said this in other places before, because it's a, it's a useful metric. What would you do if you ran into this person at the supermarket? 
that is my number one criteria for whether or not I feel okay putting a thought into the world. And it isn't so much that you, I'm okay. Like it's basically an answer to the, like it's the non answer that I gave you to that question about, do people come up to you and like want to start a fight about whatever, whatever I am fully prepared for that to happen in life. And my awareness that, I mean, even when I was writing reviews in college, I was, I wanted to be, be, I wanted to be fair. Like if I didn't like something, I had no problem saying I didn't like it and being as like clear about what doesn't work as humanly possible, but I cannot ad hominem attack you. I cannot, I cannot be mean about the person that you are unless you were demonstrably horrible person. And even then I'm kind of like, that's, that's, that's not in the work. So I'm going to, I'm going to let that not slide, but it'll be a thing that I take into consideration. Um, and then, uh, well, that's basically it. But I mean, fairness is my number one thing. And, and in being fair, the criteria for that for me, the, the criterion for that for me is, um, could I survive being alone in a line with you while trying to buy a box of Cheerios? And if the answer is no, um, then I probably shouldn't do it. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, I, I think you'd survive the line with Seth MacFarlane, but it would be a little awkward. It would be awkward is fine, yeah. right? But, like, could I defend myself, right? Could I Could I say to the to Seth MacFarlane, like, I, I know you're mad, but I'm mad too. So if you want to talk about this, let's talk about it. If I can't defend what I did or what I said, like like in a real meaningful way, then I I shouldn't do it. Like if I can't defend to the person why I'm saying or doing what I did, which is why it's really useful to just stay in the work. Like don't you can leave the work if you want, but then you have to be extra careful about you have to know why you're leaving it to like bring in all of this personal stuff about a, about the person who made it. Um but you know, other than that, I mean, you can kind of do whatever you. Anyway, th that's a that's a useful thing to think about too. But knowing knowing yourself or figuring out yourself, listening to your instincts, um, but knowing which instincts not to listen to. And I think the number one thing I would say, and this is really really important because nobody ever says it. Um, you gotta find a good editor that is that is that you trust and is good for you. Like an editor, is editors are the best that they will save you from yourself. They will make your work better if they're good and you should listen to them and you should, you should find one first of all that works, you know, that you can work with, but you have to be, you have like a good editor will, will make your work better. I promise. Good. Thank you, Wesley. <laughs> Thank uh, you for having me. Yeah, let's wrap great. Is there it's, anything else that no, you want to ask is, me? It has been a pleasure. Okay. Thank you. Oh, actually, what are you cooking? What's the next big piece? Oh, um, I'm writing about romantic comedies and like why they why they don't exist anymore and why why I wish they did and what we don't what we lose without them, like like why we're all such monsters now. We're monsters because we don't have romantic comedies. We haven't had romantic comedies in almost 20 years really not not a meaningful one um we've had things that are like romantic comedies like where all the boys go play over here and the girls go play over here and the girls are in love with the girls but they're not gay and the boys are in <laughs> love with the boys but they're not gay um 
which is fine, but they're also not about gay people being in love either. So that's it's all fucked up. And like the degree to which the the structure of this genre gave us principles to live by, um, that that is missing in our lives, I think is is created a social crisis. I think I'm not saying there'd be no me too with if if Meg Ryan were still falling in love, but I do think that the the work romantic comedies did has been misunderstood by any number of of ists and isms and i think that they were much more useful than we probably thought they were i'm deeply looking forward to <laughs> <laughs> do you, you like again? romantic comedies <laughs> do you like right <laughs> I'll, I'll do the podcast um thank you so much wesley it's been thanks a for having me this was great Thanks for tuning into In Brackets, the literary podcast of Hot Metal Bridge. It's been such a pleasure to produce this show over the past year. I've gotten to work with some really incredible colleagues, meet some great writers, and listen in on some really wonderful conversations. This year, I'll be passing the torch on to a new producer from Pitt's MFA program, Willie Kennard III. I can't wait to see what he'll do with the show. My last round of thank yous goes out to Andrew Thurman, Wesley Morris, and our assistant producer, Tyler McCloskey. I'm Avery Keatley. Thanks for tuning in to In Brackets.